The rest of us this morning are going to begin by talking a little bit about what's called apologetics, a title that's familiar to many of you, not all of you. Apologetics is a Christian discipline, a Christian area of study. It means defense. So if we're defending the truthfulness of Christianity, we're talking about apologetics. We're not apologizing, we're defending And it's something that is important. Christians value apologetics because we have a defense for the faith. Uh, Apologetics, in the best sense, is meant to give us assurance, uh, confidence that we're not crazy, uh, that we've not believed a lie. So since we've been studying the book of 1 John on Sunday mornings, and we're going to be there this morning, uh, I thought it would be good to read to you something I read this week about apologetics, because it's meant to give us assurance uh, and confidence in Christ. Now, what I'm going to read, um, many of you will not like. Some of you might like it. Um, so maybe just, just, just listen. This is, I know it's apologetics because it was categorized uh, in Charisma Magazine, where I read it, uh, under apologetics. It's called the revelation of Christ in the heavens, which we call the Star Bible. Okay, so what we're going to do is, this is apologetics. Does this give us assurance? Does it help us have more confidence uh, that we're not crazy? Or does it not do that? The article reads, The first constellation of the Star Bible, Virgo, the Virgin, promises the virgin birth of Jesus, Genesis 3, Isaiah 7. Its brightest star, Spica, or Spica, the branch, reminds us that Jesus was described as the branch of David, Jeremiah 33, and shows that Virgo also represents Israel. The sacrificial religious system God established for Israel is symbolized by Libra, the scales, and its associated constellation, Lupus, the victim, picturing a sacrificial animal. The constellation Corona Borealis, the crown, also associated with Libra, reminds us that Jerusalem is called a crown in Isaiah 62. Corona Borealis is the target of the serpent held by the constellation Aphiakis, sorry if I didn't pronounce that right. I didn't do so well in Greek mythology, if that's what this is. The serpent held, symbolizing Satan's attacks on Jerusalem and God's people before the coming of Christ. The brightest star is Corona Borealis. Oh, in Corona Borealis is Gemma, the shining, a picture of God's presence, Psalm 80, which is carried by the precision of the equinoxes to the zenith point over Jerusalem at the time of Christ as a sign in the sun, moon, and stars of his advent. And I'm going to stop there, but there's a lot more. So the question is, did that form of Christian apologetics help give you assurance? Did it help give you confidence that you're not crazy? And my one-word response to that, that I wrote out in all caps, is incredible. See, I just made everybody happy. Because if you like the article, you'll say, he liked it too. He called it incredible. And those of you who know me a little bit and have heard much preaching, I never use the word incredible because I'm kind of a literalist. And if something is incredible, it lacks credibility. 
I would suggest to you, or I'll just share my feelings with you, because that'll make everybody happy too, because we like that. My feeling is, when I read that, is that it doesn't help with my assurance. That it doesn't help my confidence that indeed Jesus is true and he was raised from the dead. It doesn't help it at all. It seems more like to me when I read it, someone who is very creative with no biblical basis whatsoever introduces this kind of subjective argument that doesn't withhold real scrutiny. It doesn't really help. In fact, I actually think it might make me feel like I'm crazy if I'm a Christian. It's so different from what we see in the Bible. In 1 John, we have biblical apologetics, not based upon my subjective creativity or yours, or like Charisma Magazine likes to do, some new special revelation from God that told them this is how you should look at the solar system. Instead, what we have in 1 John is biblical apologetics, a biblical defense for the faith. What we have is apostles like John who was there as, a, as an objective and subjective eyewitness and who not only witnessed these things along with countless other people, he witnessed these things and he also heard Jesus speak and interpret those things. Not only that do we have the apostolic eyewitness, then we have these things written down for us, inscripturated so that we can evaluate them in context. And John then says, because of what Jesus did, oh, let me back up. Because of who Jesus is, and it wasn't up to our imaginations to decide who he was, he told us who he was. He confirmed and demonstrated objectively for all eyes to see, even unbelievers, that he really had the power of the person he said he was. Then the things that he did that we ourselves saw and witnessed. Oh, and by the way, we can't write him off as a lunatic and he, because of all the other things he said and did. And he claimed to come from heaven and be able to speak authoritatively about eternal life. Christian apologetics based upon facts, based upon history, based upon revelation, inscripturated, standing the test of time, designed to do this for you and designed to to do this for me, to give us assurance, confidence that it's good to follow Christ. It's good to trust in Christ. It's the right thing to do. And it's not a good idea to follow those who say they have a different way that will lead you away from Christ. That's what 1 John is about. 1 John chapter 1 is so good because John's talking about how he was there, he heard, he saw. John chapter 1 is the same way. It's based upon reality, not creativity. What ends up happening is if you base your confidence on someone else's creativity or so-called revelation, you're not going to have a lot of assurance. And if you're honest, you really shouldn't have a lot of assurance. Because it's just based upon something someone else came up with who didn't have authority. 
That brings us to 1 John 5, verse... Oh, let's go ahead and look at it. Verse 13, which is considered the key to the whole book. We've finally gotten there. We've referenced it. We've talked about it. But we're finally to 5.13, purpose statement. I write these things to you. Again, it's beyond... It's objective even in how, it's, how, it, how it comes to us. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, writing to Christians, that you may, there's our word, know that you have eternal life. And in, in our text and throughout the whole book, he keeps using those kinds of words. No, no, no. Confidence, sure, assurance, because it's based upon reality. Remember John's gospel account, I think it's in chapter 20. He talks about he wrote these things in the gospel account so that unbelievers would believe because of the real facts. And now it's, I'm writing to you who have believed that you could have assurance because of the real facts. I write, John, an apostle. John, who was with Jesus. One of the qualifications for an apostle is you had to see Jesus raised from the dead. An apostle has the authority of the one they're sent by. It's a loaded word. It's a big word. I stress it every single time. It was stressed to me when I was first studying the Bible. When you see the word apostle, you should think the word authority. Okay? Authority. He is I, John, even though he doesn't use the word apostle, here he's writing as an apostle. By the way, if I wanted to be a false teacher, I would claim to be an apostle. I have not seen the risen Christ, so I can't be one. But lots of people claim to be apostles. And it's no wonder it makes sense that they would because that means they have the authority of the one sent by. They're sent by who's Christ. But John's not a faker. He was really there. And what does he do? He writes these things. Help me answer that question. What are these things? Well, John has been about who Jesus is, come from heaven, unique, God, man, the unique one who's like no one else. Not only that, he's written these things. He's not only explained who Jesus is, he's explained what Jesus has done, right? He's explained that he is the the atonement for our sins in chapter 2. He is our righteousness. He's explained who we are, that we're sinful. He's explained that. So he's written these things, that if you believe in Jesus, your sins are paid for. So you can have assurance. I mean, it's just so simple and so basic. If he is the propitiation, chapter 2, verse 2, then I can have assurance, and so can you. I've written these things so that you may know you have eternal life in the name of the Son of God, the unique one long ago promised of God, person and work that you would know. Philosophers talk about epistemology, coming from the Greek word pistis, faith, uh, even related to knowledge. Epistemology is, is how we know things. The discipline of knowing, how we can have confidence in something. And really, John is here giving us a true Christian epistemology. How can we know? We know based upon evidence. We know based upon eyewitness, earwitness. We know based upon the historic. 
we know based upon the fact that Jesus didn't just walk around quiet. He spoke, he explained, and that confirmed what he did. So we can know things. One mistake we make sometimes as Christians is we think we can know everything. Or we think we can know things perfectly. Or we think we can know things exhaustively. And I don't know all things, newsflash to my family. I don't know all things. I don't know things perfectly and I don't know things exhaustively. I've got a lot of learning to do. Because none of us can master those three. But here's the amazing thing. John's writing to all different kinds of people. Some would have been educated. Some wouldn't have been educated. Younger, older. And he says, you can know. You can know to the degree of sufficiency, right? That you can trust in this resurrected one and you can have eternal life. And you can know that you have eternal life. It's a great thing. It's, it's, it's an awesome, awesome, awesome thing. The reality of assurance is an awesome thing. Not, not everybody believes in assurance. Not all Christians believe in assurance. When I first became a Christian, I didn't believe in assurance. And then, then the more you read, it's like, you know, you can have, Christian, you can have assurance. And I don't want to question everyone's motives, but, but, but think about, if you can't have assurance, maybe, like with the false teachers in John, they're called false prophets and antichrists, it's because they wanted people to be their followers. Because if you tell people, they can be sure. Who knows who they'll follow? Not me. Or there's the fear of they'll be behave badly. There's always that fear. Or whatever it might be. I'm going to control people by fear. Instead, I think in the Bible, we see people controlled by freedom. I'm free in Christ and I've been united to Christ and I have the spirit of Christ and I'm now free to act like a human being and love God and love my neighbor. There's a huge, 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 huge difference. If you've believed in Jesus... As a fellow Christian and as a pastor and as a friend, I want you to have confidence. I want you to sleep well tonight. You've got enough problems. I know I do. We're trusting in the Savior who is not a faker Savior. Raised from the dead. Promised Resurrection for everybody who trusts in Him. You know, I heard someone say, what if you found out that Christianity wasn't historically true? Would you still find Christianity useful? And I heard one person say, I would. I wouldn't. In fact, when you read 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we of all people are to be pitied the most. We are a bunch of nutcases. We're wasting our time. But see, the Bible pushes for us to think beyond, well, this is true in my heart. This is true in my feelings. This is true in my spin on the constellations. This is true 
because on a Friday afternoon in the Middle East, a couple thousand years ago, the one who was fully God and fully man was crucified. And three days later was raised from the dead, the Bible says, for our justification. It's hallelujah chorus in the heart is what it is. It's awesome. Confidence. Assurance. Objective. Came from heaven. Spoke with authority. So what we'll do this morning is at least begin looking. After that verse, that's, that's the summary verse, that's the theme verse, no argument about that. Then he goes on to give some other things to kind of clean things up, if you will, and that sounds super, I don't mean to cheapen it. Some parting shots, some parting thoughts, some reminders, some elaboration. Uh, and I'm going to follow this outline with five areas where confidence in Christ is reiterated. Elaborated on five areas where confidence in Christ that builds assurance is built upon. And if we can at least get the first four done, because I'm kind of eyeing the last verse to be a sermon in and of itself, I'm just going to be honest. Let's look at these four areas that build upon the reality. If you believe in Jesus, you can have assurance. Number one, the first area relating to Christ, related to assurance, number one, it's prayer. Confidence in prayer. Prayer is talking to God. How about verse 14, if you'd look there with me, if you would. And this is the confidence. I love it that he uses all these confidence and knowing words. And this is the confidence that we have toward him. Um, You could even translate it literally, as some translations might, before him, in his presence. So this is the confidence that we, oh, earlier in the book, let me just read into this. Earlier in the book, he made it clear that we're all sinners. Because if you say you have no sin, you're a liar. So this is the confidence that we lawbreakers, we who don't love God perfectly, don't love neighbor perfectly, don't keep the commandments perfectly, this is the confidence that we can have before God, in the presence of God. This is, this is weird, Right? Take Jesus out of the equation. Take propitiation out of the equation. This is nonsense. Confidence before the throne of God Almighty, before the, the before whom the angels say, "Holy, holy, holy," is the Lord God Almighty, the God who the Bible teaches in the Psalms. You know that wonderful, nice songbook that He's angry with sin every day. I want you to feel that. I want to feel that. This is the confidence that we have before God. We shouldn't have any confidence before God. This is the confidence that we, we have be- toward Him or before Him or in His presence. Then let's keep reading. That if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. It's just, it's just meant to be extraordinary, not incredible. It's meant to be profound, staggeringly so. We, of all people, confidence before God. And then think about the false teachers who he calls antichrists and false prophets, and they're making a big claim. We know God, you know. God talks to me. You know, I can see the footprints in my carpet or whatever it is. (sighs) They're they're the ones, they're the special Christians. 
And he's talking to the ordinary Christians. And we have confidence before God. It's it's so good. Make, I'm, I, it's just awesome. Thank you for letting me have my little charismatic experience. Confidence before God. I can ask anything according to his will. I love the qualifier because it helps me understand uh, things. He hears us. And as we'll see, he hears with, 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 you know, with desire for our good. It's not he hears as a distraction. Personal, affectionate. My, my, my prayer this week literally was God help me to think like this because I don't think like this. Sitting on my front porch. God help me. I don't get it. If I really think this way, and what's going to help me to think this way is to think about who I am, who he is, what Jesus did to propitiate, to atone for my rebellion, and now I just, I I ask God for anything according to his will. So good. How about verse 15? And we know. Ah, We have confidence in verse 14. Now we have knowing. We know that He hears us in whatever we ask. We know that we have the request that we have asked of Him. It's it's super good. Let me encourage you to, to, to try praying that way. Yeah, but, 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 but what, what about, don't I, don't I kind of need to have a boost? I mean, right, how, what could give me such confidence? Don't I need the candles at the religious bookstore? Don't I need the beads? Don't, don't I need somebody else to kind of do this for me? You see? He's talking to people like us saying, you can have that kind of confidence and knowing. This is the sort of thing that destroys religious empires. This upsets the apple cart in a glorious way. Freedom! Security! Christ is everything because how could you do this? Well, it's because of what He's done you could do this. And if I could just maybe kind of, you know, dogpile on in a good way, mental cross-reference to Romans chapter 8, where the Apostle Paul says we don't always know what God's will is, so we still pray freely because the Holy Spirit intercedes on our behalf. So to the best of my ability, I'm going to pray according to God's will, but I still don't know what God's sovereign will is. So I know that by the time my prayer reaches heaven, it's been translated by the Holy Spirit, and it's all fine. And I'm not trying to make light of it. Super good. Now, again, in our context, we have no sense from John that if you do this, then God will give you new special revelation. And I'm bringing that up because one of the reasons maybe I'm not so fervent in praying like this is because, what? I don't hear back. at least not audibly, with special revelation. 
But the sense we're getting from John is, don't let that deter you. The driver is, you've been brought into a right relationship with God through the finished work of Jesus and ask and ask and ask with confidence that He hears. So I'm not going to be intimidated by those who say, well, you've got kind of a second-class prayer life because here's what God tells me every day. And now I'm a have-not. And now I lack assurance. But we shouldn't. I love this. The tomb is empty. Translation, if I'm trusting in the one whose tomb is empty, my prayers are heard. Might not always feel like it. Might not always seem like it. Sometimes it does seem like it because you see things happening and you say, God, thank you for answering prayer. But sometimes it doesn't seem like it. But where do I need to look? I can't can't just keep looking at the things and my circumstances and myself. But where I can keep looking is to the fact that Jesus' bones aren't in Israel. Alrighty then. I like it. Let's go to number two. Hope you like it too. Preaching is weird, isn't it? Preaching is weird. I've been thinking about this even more and more lately. I mean, think about how weird preaching is. Not to mention how weird preachers are, but... I mean, where does this happen in your life? So you're going to walk in a metal building in a field um, and some guy's going to raise his voice and speak with authority about things that other people say no one can speak with authority about. It's weird. But as an aside, what's interesting is it's what Christians have always been called to. And the preacher's not supposed to stand up and tell you his inner thoughts and inner experiences or outer experiences. But if we believe the Bible is true, it is God's word breathed out by God, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, and leads to transformation. Chapter 4, the pastor's called to be a herald and proclaim. It's weird. Cultural, um, what's the word? Culture shock. It's culture shock. Where were we? (laughs) Yeah, thank you. (laughs) I thought of this because we were, Pastor Mike Grimes and I were working on something for a a visitor packet. And, you know, how do you you welcome people and say welcome to your culture shock? Glad you're here today. Glad you're with us. Um, Here's what we do, and we do it on purpose, right? Because I can just imagine, I'd walk in here as a visitor knowing nothing about anything, thinking, if those guys think that's good marketing, they're crazy. We don't think it's good marketing. But we do think that preaching is a mandate, 
And we do think that Jesus is right when he says, my sheep hear my voice. So here we go. Thank you for being my counselor. Let me get that off my chest. I feel better now. Number two, a related issue. Confidence in prayer for struggling believers. He wants to encourage us to pray for struggling believers and to have confidence about how we pray for struggling believers. And I'm just going to tell you right now that so much is clear in 1 John. And verses 16 and 17 are hard to understand. They're difficult to understand, but I'm going to, I think I'm going to help you. I know the first audience understood this much better than I do, but remember, remember, remember. He's writing to people in a context of, rem- don't leave the faith. Don't be like those in 1 John chapter 2, verse 19, 19 who went out from us. To use a big word, a label, they were apostate. They professed faith and then they've denied the faith. They've left the historic Jesus, raised from the dead, atoning sacrifice Jesus. And he's writing in that context. Remember, he calls them false prophets and antichrists. And he's warning against that sort of thing. So I'm going to read it in that light. It helps. It doesn't solve everything, but it helps. Verse 16 says, If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life. Now, this might help. Let's, let's reread it, and I'm just going to take some things out. I, I'm not trying to alter the Bible, but just for clarity's sake, it might help, it might not. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, ask, and God will give him life. That at least helps me. If, if, if I know one of you, you know someone who's committing sin because Christians do struggle with sin. They're not supposed to sin. They're supposed to do the right thing. But chapter 1 told us that we have sin. If you see someone, you should pray for them and you can know, right? The context is confidence. God hears your prayers and God is going to use your prayers to lead to their good, to lead to their life. Okay? But then he does add that not leading to death. I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm interpreting that, as many others do, as that apostasy thing. We don't pray for those within the fellowship the same way we might want to pray for apostates. I think is what he's getting at. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is a sin that does not lead to death. Sin that leads to death. There's a sin that doesn't lead to death. If you see people committing sin that doesn't lead to death, you should pray for them and it'll lead to their life. Be confident about that. I'm sort of confident. <laughs> Again, I think what he's getting at, I'm in a pretty good company on this uh, when it comes to commentators and those who've gone before us. We pray for fellow believers who are associated with the Jesus of the Bible, person and work, forgiving our sins. When believers sin, we should pray for them. The sin leading to death, it seems to me, would be those who have gone out from us, who are not really of us. 
and we would pray differently for them. And we're not promised that our prayer for them is going to lead to their life. Because they've actually disassociated themselves from the source of eternal life. Here's a good takeaway to not get us too bogged down here. I think, by the way, in Second Peter, when Peter says some things Paul wrote were hard to understand, I think you should have said Paul and John. <laughs> but I'm not going to add to the Bible. <laughs> this is kind of a hard one. I do like it that he says anyone. We're back to that reality in verse 16. This is meant for ordinary Christians like us. Where you see someone in sin, we should pray for them. You don't need some kind of super-duper magisterial, you know, kind of powers and robes and hats and things. You see someone in sin, because you belong to God, you pray to God. And if you're praying for a believer, guess what? It is going to work out for their good. And you should pray with confidence like that. Dealing with those who are apostate, and we do deal with people who are apostate in a different sort of way. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, they're delivered over to Satan into the, the realm of helplessness and hopelessness, hoping that they would repent and turn and come back to trust in Christ. Well, let's move on to another point of confidence. Number three, confidence relating to Christ reiterated in the area of perseverance. Perseverance, continuing True believers run the race to the very end, not like those in 1 John chapter 2, verse 19. How about verse 18 there? If you look with me, we know, confidence, that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. We know that everyone who's been born of God, he likes that terminology, born from above, born of God. Because Jesus was raised from the dead, the power of the Spirit causes us to be born from God. And he says, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. Some of your translations don't do quite as good of a job bringing out what's called the present tense. That I'm preaching from the ESV today. Uh, does not keep on sinning. It brings out the present tense. Um, others say... Whoever's been born of God does not sin. Doesn't bring out the present tense. So you can write, write in your margin. If you're using a New American Standard, and that's how I think, because that's how I learned the Bible, uh, and I memorize the Bible, and I still think in New American Standard terms, but I would write in my margin, present tense. Because otherwise, you can start a new cult, the sinless perfectionism cult which would be a denial of chapter 1, verse 8, which wouldn't make any sense. But here's the point. The point is, if you're a Christian, you've been born of God, you were dead, now you're alive, guess what? You show signs of life. It's impossible for you to not bear fruit because you were dead and now you're alive. And so people who are alive have signs of life. That's what he's getting at. So, so that's why I use the word perseverance. We, we're going to struggle. We're going to fall. We're going to stumble. We're not perfect. Chapter 1, verse 8. But if we're believers, we will keep going. 
There will be growth. There will be signs of life. There will be development. And remember, the assurance is coming from the finished work of Christ, but part of the finished work of Christ is then Him giving us His Spirit that keeps working in us. There can be confidence about this. True confidence about this. Now, looks like we're going to stop on point three. But maybe one thing about this business of perfectionism. In, in fact, just this morning, a friend of mine stopped me when he was coming in. And I said, I've got to tell you a story about what I heard. I was at a wedding yesterday and there were two pastors, charismatic kind of pastors sitting behind me. And one said to the other one, what are you preaching Sunday? And I'm paraphrasing this, okay? But what are you preaching on Sunday? Well, I'm preaching Romans chapter 6. And the more they talk, well, Romans chapter 6, you know, we've died with Christ. And then one of the pastors proceeded to essentially say, I'm therefore concluding that Christians don't sin. So somewhere in greater Nebraska, Iowa region today, there's a preacher helping people wink, wink by telling them that Christians don't sin. Not helpful. And by the way, you want to lose your assurance quick? How about that? By the way, Romans chapter 6, I don't want to preach Romans 6. You're, you're united to Christ positionally, so you've died with Christ and you've been raised with Christ, and so now you're going to live unto newness of life, but it's not talking about sinless perfection. Never mind First John, but throughout Christian history, there has been this temptation and tendency. Sometimes it's because we don't translate the present tense in First John. Sometimes it's because of other reasons. And Christians get all confused and all wound up in this sinless perfectionism thing. And by the way, it might make it feel at first like you can be confident and have assurance because I don't sin anymore, so of course God accepts me. But nobody actually really believes that. If we're honest, it is a struggle. Christians struggle with sin. We have a perfect Savior whose work is done. Not only that, His work is ongoing because we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, who points to His own finished work. Not only that, we have the Spirit of God within us who produces fruit in our lives, starting with love. As an interesting historical note, um, it happened yesterday at a wedding in Iowa. Um, I'm sure it happens in other places too. Um, but Benjamin Breckenridge Warfield, the guy with the coolest name ever. Benjamin Breckenridge Warfield. B.B. Warfield. He was called the Lion of Princeton back when Princeton had a soul at their theological seminary. He, one of his students, J. Gresham Machen, said when they carried Dr. Machen's body out of whatever building it was, it was symbolic of Princeton dying. He wrote in the later 1800s, Benjamin Breckenridge Warfield did. Some of you might have seen his 10-volume set. To this day, we like Warfield because of his great, tenacious defense of things like the inspiration of Scripture. But Warfield wrote two volumes on perfectionism because it was such a big problem in the United States in the late 1800s. And I thought it was fascinating. He's hard to read, pretty, pretty 
wordy, difficult to read. Um, but I thought it was interesting. I'm just going to read a portion of what he says about this. And we're going we're gonna to borrow from a long time ago to maybe learn about today. The historical source from which the mainstreams of perfectionist, perfectionist doctrine that have invaded modern Protestantism take their origin is the teaching of John Wesley. And then he goes on to say, but he's not the only one. He basically says it comes from two places. He says it comes from mysticism. God told me, God talks to me, new revelation. And John Wesley dabbled in that. You know John Wesley's name because of uh, Methodism. Okay? Wesley didn't believe he was sinlessly perfect, but he believed that Christians could be sinlessly perfect. Because he, he receives new revelation that the Bible doesn't give. So you've got the Wesleyan types who believe that you can reach sinless perfectionism. But, and, and I know that. I've, I've known that. He talks about the Quakers and others. But then he also said it comes from another place. And I thought this was interesting. He said it comes from Pelagianism. Pelagianism, uh, Pelagius believed that we, we are not sinful. Uh, we're not inherently sinful. We're not altogether sinful. And Warfield goes on to talk about Pelagianism leads to what's called Arminianism. Do we have enough isms today? Sorry. It's that we're not spiritually dead. We're spiritually sick. And as long as we cooperate with God, then God will meet us halfway, so to speak, but we may lose our salvation because it's not all of Christ. I thought it was kind of interesting. So it's not only the kind of mystical, Quaker, uh, Wesley kind of thing, but it's also uh, on the Arminian side of things. I can reach this place where I don't sin anymore. You know where that comes from? It comes from the fact that we don't realize how bad sin is. Remember, 1 John says, sin is lawlessness. Oh, well, what is God's law? Tell me I have to do. Love God with heart, soul, mind, and strength and love my neighbor as myself. I'm lawless. Perfect motives all the time? No, 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 no. So I need Christ's finished work and I need his ongoing work to say, I am the advocate, Jesus Christ the righteous, I've covered Pat. I'll never be sinlessly perfect until, but if you don't grasp that, then you might go down that road. Until, as 1 John says, I think it's in chapter 3, but we've been in 1 John a long time. We see Christ in what? are made like Him. Perfectionism is going to happen. Positionally, now, you're united to Christ, but practically, not until we see Him. So we could pray for that pastor that my friend heard yesterday, that when he gets to Romans 8, he'll see that the positional in Christ in Romans 6 isn't actualized isn't realized, isn't experienced until we see Christ and are made like Him in glorification. Wow, we covered a lot of ground today. A lot of isms, apologetics, uh, epistemology. It all is rather simple. Because of who Jesus is, because of what He did, 
including his own explanation of it in real time, in real space, before real eyewitnesses who carried his authority, we can have confidence that we are not loony if we're trusting in Christ. There'll be more next week. I can hardly wait. Father, thank you so much for our time. Thank you for Omaha Bible Church. Thank you for the men and women and boys and girls who make up this church. We're grateful. We're grateful for the way you sustain us and encourage us, even through preaching. And we're thankful that you sustain us in other ways also. You're indeed a gracious Savior. We love you, and we love the fact that you loved us first, and that's why we love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.